I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. George Gendron has spent a career as an aggressive champion of small and independent business. He was editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine for two decades, where he founded the Inc. 500. He founded and directed the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at Clark University, and he formed a joint venture with Michael Porter of the Harvard Business School to publish the Inner City 100, a ranking of the fastest-growing companies in America's inner cities. His latest venture is the exploration of of the solo economy. George, the urban economy is shifting to include what appears to be a growing number of workers who are in effect on their own. They've been called independents, freelancers, contractors, giggers. You call them soloists. Describe the solo economy. I'll give you two descriptions. Here's a description from one of the most often cited research uh, reports. Independent workers include those on fixed-term contracts, independent consultants, those working through temporary agencies, workers on on call arrangement, and those who own a business with fewer than five employees. That's the technical definition. I think the common sense definition and the one that we use at Solo is that uh, there are people who are working in non-traditional relationships with established organizations. And um, I, I think when you explain kind of that to people, they get it instantly. Exactly what you were saying before, freelancers, independent contractors, people who are moving often from project to project, and in some cases, people who are moving back and forth from employment status to a project-based solo status back to employment. The traditional boundaries, if you will, between one form of employment and another are becoming much more permeable, which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to count soloists. Well, and a lot of people have tried counting. Do you have a number? Do do you have an estimate of a number that you think are engaged in the solo economy? We have not done our own original research yet. One of the things that we're hoping to promote, and in fact, actually with the relationship that we've built with you, the Knife Foundation, um, there are estimates, as you all know, that range from 20 million on the low end up to 70 million on the high end. We tend to subscribe to the lower end, I think some of the numbers at the higher end are inflated because the research has been um, kind of designed or not executed, but it's been subsidized by companies that have uh, an agenda, you know, and, and, a, and a reason to try to inflate those numbers. But I think the most solid count, Sarah Horowitz, who we, for whom we have enormous respect, the founder of the freelance union, says that about a third of the adult population right now is working as part of this new independent economy. Um, there are 140 million uh, full-time workers, adult workers in the United States. That would mean there'd be 40 million of us that are working in non-traditional relationships with employers. So it's a big number, no matter how you count it. And I think much more importantly, everybody agrees it's growing very rapidly. We're in a period, I don't know, for 15 years now, since the year 2000, when the traditional labor market is growing very slowly at about 1%. This part of the marketplace seems to be growing um, at about 15 or 17 percent, so exponentially faster, which is either good news or bad, depending upon how you tend to view it. Well, I think you make a good point. It, it Good news or bad news, because soloists enjoy a certain independence and flexibility. That's, a, that's the good news, but they don't have the supports that many full-time workers have. What do these workers need, and how can cities support them? Well, two different questions, right? They overlap, but what do they need? They need they need a whole host of things. One of the things, as you know, I, I, I was I led the creative team that built the Ink Magazine brand, and so we've been here before. We, by that I mean we've explored this question of 
support for, in this case, in the Inc.'s case, organizations that were small enough that they depended very much on the external infrastructure, unlike large companies that can create their own infrastructure. So soloists, think of them as an extreme version of what we've seen with the entrepreneurial population. So they are they depend uh, to an extraordinary extent on the external environment for all sorts of supports. Um, some of those can be provided by companies, and we're beginning to see that right now. Marketplaces where they can you can put together employers of independent workers with the independent workers themselves. Unfortunately, most of those really serve the very bottom end of the market in terms of the caliber and the economic value of the work. What I think soloists desperately need and is beginning to be provided, but still very fragmented, are a lot of back office supports. A lot of them just aren't prepared to take on a lot of the fundamental legal and accounting issues that really have to do when you have to do well, but are a nuisance and they get in the way of the revenue generating activities. So we're beginning to see more firms begin to step up their back office infrastructure building for soloists. On the other hand, I think that soloists need a combination in terms of kind of what cities can provide. They need a combination of what young professionals of all kinds really want and crave and also what entrepreneurs need. And so our list, our wish list, and one of the things that we're going to be exploring very aggressively in our joint venture with the Knight Foundation is the importance of affordable urban housing, which in some parts of the country is not a big issue. In other parts of the country, I live in Boston, it is a brutal issue. Um, We have a lot of, uh, we have one of the great global, great, globally great uh, educational infrastructures. So we attract the best and the brightest and a lot of them who would love to stay here and work here, whether as soloists or as employees, simply can't afford to because of the housing costs. And so we're driving them out of the city, as is New York, as is San Francisco, to a lesser extent, L.A. And you're beginning to see second-tier cities beginning to capitalize on this in terms of not just affordable urban housing, but affordable cost of living in general, where people feel they can really, they and their families can get ahead. So um, I think that's one thing. The second is um, really, really crucial. We're beginning to see some real progress here, and that's the development of a really rich, co-working office space infrastructure. Co-working spaces in some cities now are commonplace. What these co-working spaces offer is some of the advantages of being in a traditional office space at its best. There's a certain kind of conviviality and sociability that many soloists, not all, but many soloists find really important. A collegial environment in which there's an opportunity to swap ideas. Increasingly, some of the really advanced co-working spaces if you go inside them, they actually represent kind of micro ecosystems in a way. And uh, there's a place in Minneapolis, but if you go inside of it, it's uh, it's phenomenal. It, you feel like you're in a small micro urban city with uh, large companies offering services for soloists, clusters of designers doing branding work, accountants, professionals, investors for those soloists that decide they, they want to start to grow their business in ways that they hadn't planned originally. So it's not just office uh, space, although that's important. These actually become kind of little mini ecosystems that can substitute for some, not all, of the advantages that I think we all enjoy in a healthy working environment. I also think it's really important to do something that has not happened a lot yet. It's beginning to happen a little bit more, and that's to be strategic. Mayors can influence this enormously about where those co-working spaces exist. 
And what you really want in an ideal world is you want the co-working spaces located so that they're adjacent to really vibrant economic clusters. So in Boston, that would be the technology cluster, financial services cluster, big pharma's healthcare, because soloists, like the rest of us, are hyper-dependent on accessing highly developed social networks of accountants, attorneys, experienced soloists, entrepreneurs, investors, um, to help them kind of develop a sustainable solo life. Um, those aggregate already around these clusters. And so what you really want to do is you almost want to force mixer style a certain amount of um, physical proximity and interaction so that these uh, so that these soloists and independent professionals have an opportunity to kind of really begin to meet and tap effortlessly into these established networks. Um, I think one of the other things that uh, mayors can do using their office as a bully pulpit is to influence education two ways in particular. And one is um, at the university level. And, you know, there's a public perception that universities have done a fabulous job of building out their entrepreneurial infrastructure over the past maybe 20 years, 10 in particular. And that's true. But what they have not done yet is they haven't created really effective campus-wide entrepreneurship programs to guarantee that all of their students, including ones in the performing arts, including liberal arts, the sciences, have some exposure to um, entrepreneurship and innovation programs that demystify entrepreneurship for them, because soloing, again, is a form of entrepreneurship, small-scale entrepreneurship. And um, you're seeing some universities begin to experiment with this, but unfortunately right now, most higher ed entrepreneurship and innovation infrastructure is really designed to encourage students to become kind of the next Bill Gates or the next, you know, build the next Facebook or the next Google. Um, and that's a huge missed opportunity and that will change. Um, and I think mayors and um, elected officials can do a lot to use their influence to begin to encourage universities to capitalize on this incredible opportunity. I think of it as democratizing entrepreneurship and financial literacy education. So that's huge. I also think that kind of beginning to build the DNA in our young students, young men and women um, in public schools, the DNA that uh, builds the confidence that they can take care of themselves economically, um, that, that, that can be done at the high school level through um, highly proven financial literacy programs, and they're not time consuming. But I think that gradually some cities and some states now are beginning to make financial literacy a mandated part of the economic curriculum. And I think that's crucial. Most highly developed industrial culture on the face of the earth. And what have we done? We haven't just delegated. We've abdicated responsibility to take care of our finances to somebody else. And so what that's done is it's bred a sense in our culture that we have no control over the economic life of anything, including ourselves. I'll come in, I'll work really hard, and you'll take care of all that stuff. My salary, my 401k, my health care benefits. Well, institutions can't do that any longer. We know that. All bets are off. And so what we have right now is we're in this interim period, Carol, where, uh, let's face it, most of us have grown up in an environment where we're simply not prepared to take charge of our own financial, economic lives, or create our own professional security. And that's what this is about. That's what um, the Solo Project is about. That's what a lot of these other organizations, that's what Sarah, Sarah Horowitz at the Freelance Union is working on, is finding ways to start to build the infrastructure 
to allow Americans to begin to kind of take charge of their economic destiny and do it with a sense of confidence. You, you talk about financial literacy and understanding the hidden economic life of, of our world, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But obviously, financial literacy is not enough to, to make you a successful soloist. What are the other no. key skills and attributes that soloists need to succeed? Um, as you know, I launched um, a very unusual innovation uh, center at Clark University. And prior to doing that, I spent a lot of time taking a look at the state of the research about what are the skills that differentiate any entrepreneurial population from one that doesn't have these entrepreneurial skills and attitudes. So a lot of the work that's been done for two decades now, trying to figure out, are there a handful of skills and attitudes that um, kind of drive this independent mindset, very, very relevant. So one of the things is what I call alertness. And by that, I mean curiosity in young men and women about why things work the way they do and where things come from in the first place. And so, for example, we used to take our students, most of whom were freshmen, most of whom had never had any kind of a business or economics course, and we would take them out on the street in Worcester, Massachusetts, an old industrial town in central Massachusetts, and their job was to walk up and down the street both sides. It was a relatively long city block, and they had to go in and they had to interview the shopkeepers, and they had to find out where did this shop come from in the first place. And it was really interesting because they'd approached the assignment with a sense of kind of not dread, but they thought it was boring. These are small little mom-and-pop businesses, you know, they're not really cool. Who really cares about them? By the time they were finished at the end of a three-hour segment, had to come back and report to their peers and their fellow students what they had learned. They were energized because what they found was there was an amazing story behind almost every single one of those. The purpose of that exercise was to begin to elicit this response on the part of the students. It's not arrogant, but that says, you know what? These stories are great, but I can do this. This isn't rocket science. And so what you begin to do, step one, is you're demystifying this world of business, small business, and entrepreneurship, which has been unfortunately covered by the media in a way that creates the impression, which is wrong, that, you know, there's a very small part of the population that has this extraordinary Steve Jobs-like DNA, and the rest of us, you know, well, we just, we, we work for the Steve Jobses of the world, and that's not true. I, I believed and I believe to this day that every single one of the students that ever walked into one of my classrooms has the capacity to start their own business. Maybe not a big one, but with a solo phenomenon, we're not talking about that. So the first is alertness. It's kind of a curiosity about how the world works. And, um, you know, I, I uh, often find that by the time the students have finished, had finished my program, because I'm not, not at Clark any longer, we would walk into a restaurant, take them to dinner, around graduation time, and they would walk in and they would immediately begin to look at, think, how does this restaurant make money? Why are they organized the way they are? How much of the money they make comes from the bar? Why are the tables organized this way? That's exactly what you want to do. You just want to create a kind of curiosity in their minds about how the world works. And that's also linked to what we were just talking about, financial literacy. And it comes to financial literacy, culturally, it's not just that we're ignorant. We have a block. We know what a math block is and a science block. We have a block. And a lot of people believe that, you know, they don't even have the capacity to balance their own checkbook. Um, one of the most uh, responded to NPR series that was ever done was done on economic literacy. And they were swamped 
with calls. And the calls came from very successful professionals, often, often doctors, dentists, lawyers, who said, you know, I went into medicine to become a doctor. I'm now running a pretty complicated practice. I don't have a clue how my practice works economically. And so this is kind of a national epidemic that we've got to address. Another is we've got to, be, we've, we've got to help students develop real fundamental but effective communication skills. And we know about this. We've talked about kind of the declining writing ability, but also students often just don't have the confidence to get up in front of a room and explain their ideas. And we know how crucial in a project economy that is to be able to take an idea and explain it, and not just explain it, but explain it to different populations, to your peers, to potential investors, to a customer. I think probably the single most important characteristic that can be developed sounds very abstract is um, what people these days are referring to as resilience, which really has to do with a, a willingness to live with ambiguity. And by that, I mean um, the world of independent professionals, the world of entrepreneurs is filled with ambiguity about doing things today for an uncertain outcome. That's the fun one fundamental definition of kind of entrepreneurial behavior. And, um, you know, we're hardwired as humans. We want closure. We really are desperate for closure. We want to do something today, understanding what the outcome is going to be. And often that's simply not part of the life of an independent professional. It's filled with a kind of set of unknowns. Where's the next project going to come from? Um, working on a project, you know, what can I do, if anything, to guarantee that I'm actually going to get paid, which is a chronic problem. And so the life is filled with um, a kind of uncertainty that we often, unfortunately, think is synonymous with insecurity. And it's not. Um, ambiguity just means that not everything is going to be tied up in nice, neat package today. And there are lots of things that we can do to help develop this in everybody. Think about this. The problem in education, the way in which it's designed today, starting K through 12 through higher ed, is what's the absolute worst thing that can happen to you as a student? To get an F. That's the worst thing. What's the one thing that we know happens to us every single day when we're out in the world, you working in foundations, me launching a new business? It's, um, it's going to get a lot of Fs. <laughs> we're going to mess up a lot. So what's the moral of that story? The moral is we're all going to get a lot of Fs. The harder we try, the more Fs we're going to get. It's not don't get Fs. It's learn from those, recognize your mistakes, figure out what you did wrong, correct them, and move on. That's resilience. And unfortunately, it's contrary to a big part of the culture that we've uh, bred in Western education. And that's going to have to change. So while educators kind of debate back and forth between you know, traditional schools and ref the reformers and charter schools, I often feel they're really missing the, the really essential thing, which is we need to change the fundamentals of culture in schools so the students begin to understand that if you're not getting Fs, you're really not trying hard enough. So this notion of resilience and an ability to live with ambiguity that breeds adaptability in a rapidly changing, changing environment is really huge. The last thing sounds so unbelievably anticlimactic and remedial. And it's, um, man, I watch students fail at this all the time, is we need students to develop what I would call fundamental project management skills. We can call it teamwork. Here was the biggest surprise to me. You know, I've grown up in media. When I was asked to create the Clark University program, I had not been in higher ed, so I was kind of parachuting in there as a newcomer. 
So one of the questions I got most often was, uh, what's the biggest surprise as you kind of re-enter education for the first time since you were a college student yourself? And the biggest surprise was how much work for all students was project work, teamwork. I was a liberal arts major, and my work was all solo. It was, you know, going off and reading and writing and analyzing on my own. Well, I would say half of even most liberal arts curriculums today are comprised of teamwork. And yet we've done nothing to prepare these students for how to manage a project. So some of my best students would uh, work on a project and they would absolutely perish. It would be a disaster, not because they didn't have mastery of the content, but because they had no idea about the fundamentals of how does a team work together. If you talk to employers, particularly employers in fast-moving sectors, media, technology, design, parts of the financial service industry, they'll tell you that the most crucial skills for young people coming in are project management skills. It's kind of the ability to work well, work really quickly in a team, finish a project, start with a completely different team, um, and start all over again. Sounds clinical, remedial, and technical. It's not. It really has a lot to do with building human relations, knowing how to work in a group of highly creative people to get kind of your best work done, but done on budget and on time. So all of these things, here's the good news, all of these things are there, as Peter Drucker used to say, they're just disciplines, meaning that you can teach them, and the more you do them, the better you get at them. The bad news is, or the frustrating news is that we're just not responding rapidly enough on the education front to building in kind of themes, if you will, that help students develop these capacities so that they, when they get out, they can thrive in a world that's very different than the world that I ended up graduating into decades ago, where the pace of change was very, very slow. Institutions, if you got a good job, were providing all sorts of security for you. And so the deal was you just come in and do the work and we'll take care of the rest. So, you know, we know that error is over. And the question now that we're exploring here today in this call, and of course, with the solo project and our relationship with the Knight Foundation is, okay, so how how do we then build kind of individuals and the infrastructure they need to prosper in this new environment, which is both thrilling and also terrifying at the same time? <laughs> George, I think that's why the project you're undertaking is so valuable. Thanks so much for being with us uh, on Night Cities to share it. You bet. George Gendron heads the solo project. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.